Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. The Bob Cordaro Show Podcast. That's Janice Ian, the number one adult charts hit this date, 1975. You got to remember that song. At least uh, those of us of a certain age. Bob Cadaro back for our number two. Great good morning. It is 10.08 a.m. in Northeast Pennsylvania. This beautiful Wednesday, August 9, 2023. This is the Bob Cadaro Show. I am he. It is a big day to fight for America, defend our values, and honor the brave who have made us and kept us free. People like Chet Kempinski of Hanover, who we honor today, who we spoke to today. So with history, our great founding fathers, and the incomparable Constitution of the United States of America as our guides, let us continue today's battle. And as we often do, not always, because, you know, the the brain of an Airedale, I, I, I could get distracted, we gavel back into order this meeting of the Club for Common Sense, where we do provide a sanctuary of sanity for all of you to bathe in. If you so choose, you can luxuriate in it. Now, last week, we had Rick Bigelow on to talk about the buildup leading to Desert Shield. And August 9th, 1990, the United States of America and its allies implemented Operation Desert Shield. Now, it's it's a monumental undertaking. The I, I just remember it happening for months and months and months. And at this point, the buildup is just about complete. And Rick Bigelow is with us to take it from here, our great patent attorney and historian. Rick, welcome back, as always. Glad to be with you, Bob. Tell us where we stand August 9th, 1990. Yeah, on August 9th, uh, of course, you remember that August 2nd, uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq invaded uh, Kuwait, and this immediately set off alarm bells throughout the, the entire world because of the uh, the control over the oil uh, in the Middle East. Um, by taking over Kuwait, uh, Iraq now controlled about 25, <coughs> pardon me, 25% of the world's oil. And they were immediately very concerned about him moving into Saudi Arabia. And, you and, know, neither and, Kuwait- and, and Rick, you know what? It strikes me immediately, and I'm not going to drag you into politics. I'm going to drag you into policy a bit. 
it shows what happens when we are de- energy dependent. It mattered so much to us at that point and the world, obviously, because this is pre-fracking in the United States or essentially pre-fracking. Right. And uh, actually, we had been a net importer of oil since about 1953, and we just were becoming more and more dependent on foreign oil. Um, a lot of it comes from Canada, which is secure, but uh, much of it was coming from the Middle East and places like Korea and Japan and so on were, were getting an awful lot of their oil from the Middle East. So it, it became very important to uh, many of the, the largest uh, economies in the Western world. So so we were very concerned that uh, he was going to move into Saudi Arabia, and if he moved into Saudi Arabia, he would control 50% of the world's oil. So we... Uh, decided with other nations that we were going to set up uh, a defensive shield around Saudi Arabia, and that's when uh, Operation Desert Shield uh, began. And that began on this date in 1990. And in early August of 1990, there were about 10,000 U.S. ground troops in and around Saudi Arabia and the Middle East, and 20,000 sailors and Marines on uh, U.S. ships in the Persian Gulf, Red Sea, Mediterranean. And uh, there was something called the Maritime Preposition Ships, which was three squadrons that the Navy had set up in the early 80s that had uh, Marine Corps, primarily Marine, but some Army uh, equipment, material tanks, uh, trucks, uh, armored personnel carriers, all kinds of ammunition. Uh, there were three of these squadrons throughout the world. One was in uh, in Norfolk, and they would go into uh, northern Europe and the Mediterranean on occasion. Uh, another one was headquartered in Guam, and a third one was uh, homeported in uh, Diego Garcia, which is part of the British Indian Ocean territories, about a thousand miles south of India. And these ships were immediately sent to the Persian Gulf. Uh, to, to start building up the uh, logistics that we would need to defend Saudi Arabia. Now, tell us about <laughs> t- tell us, Rick Bigelow, about the forces that the United States had uh, available to it for this operation, and you know, military commitments worldwide. Well, at, at that point in time, we had about two million active duty personnel, and we were drying down. Uh, we had uh, we had a peak during Vietnam of uh, more or less uh, four or five million. Since uh, the end of the Vietnam War, we were drawing down. And we had about 1.6 million in the Reserve and National Guard. And this is immediately uh, so, post-Cold War. So this is something, it's a trend that was going to accelerate, and we knew it. But uh, fortunately, at that time, we were not completely, uh, you know, without troops. Yeah, and in fact, uh, Colin Powell very famously said, what a mistake uh, Saddam Hussein had made, because if he'd waited about a year, we couldn't have done Desert Shield or Desert Storm. (laughs) So, And we knew we had to move a lot of men and material and equipment into the Middle East, and so they had to uh, reactivate the Merchant Marine Reserve Fleet and, and we knew that a lot of it was going to have to go by sea. 
we knew we could get huge airlift into there, but 90% of the equipment eventually would have to go by sea. So we reactivated these uh, merchant ships that had kind of been laid up since uh, the Korean War uh, in, in two reserve fleets. And so we had to uh, bring back uh, into service a lot of merchant mariners who were used to that type of ship. Uh, so it, it was a huge logistic effort just to uh, form uh, Desert uh, Desert Shield. Now, uh, so- uh, Rick Bigelow, the, Iraq <laughs> is a relative, I mean, for as small a country as it was, and I don't think a lot of us realized how small at the time, but they have a substantial military in Kuwait and obviously in their own country. Yeah, they do. And uh, we have to remember that they were supplied uh, with with uh, tanks and training and aircraft by the Russians, and also some of the uh, the aircraft they had were sold to them by the French. So they had fairly sophisticated uh, a military, and of course they had just been beaten up uh, tremendously in the Iran Iraq War, where they you know, probably lost three hundred thousand troops or something like that. But but they were they were experienced troops, uh, and and they were a formidable force, or at least so we thought initially. But they had something like within about a month, they had something like three hundred sixty thousand troops in Kuwait, uh, and they were digging in because they thought that uh, since we declared Desert Shield and we're moving things into Saudi Arabia primarily. They thought that that maybe we would uh, try to take Kuwait back. Now, uh, in the you know in, in a couple of months, the price of oil and energy writ large was going to gyrate and and increase more than gyrate, and uh, it had just started back in August. But t- tell us what was going on then. Because I remember the the world economy financing. I was looking at buying some radio stations right then when uh, that attack occurred uh, by Saddam Hussein against Kuwait, and they said financial markets are frozen. It's over. Right, and, and a lot of it was because uh, the the market price of oil pretty much doubled in almost overnight. It had been about uh, seventeen dollars a barrel uh, when the invasion occurred. And by the middle of October, it was up to $34 a barrel. And if you needed it immediately, it was probably going to cost you more. Well, Rick Bigelow, uh, we'd call those the good old days now, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Some uh, other things are going on. Now, We George Bush signed an order to recall up to 40,000 reservists at the right. end of August. And there's a call up of the National Guard. Tell, tell us a little bit about that, because we are mobilizing. We haven't seen anything like that in a long time. That is correct. In, in fact, uh, during the Vietnam War, very few reserve and guard units were called up. Some were, but for the most part, uh, especially in the early part of the Vietnam War, they were the, uh, the Pentagon was more worried about uh, the Russians and the what they called the inter-German border in Europe. And so they they uh, were holding back calling up reservists for uh, a, a potential conflict in Europe. So most of the uh, Vietnam troops 
uh, were draftees. Uh, so we hadn't, there wasn't much experience since the Korean War in calling up uh, large numbers of people. W- one other thing, you know, this whole uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, uh, the people that were leading it had been, you know, young officers and senior enlisted in Vietnam, and, and they were very wary of getting into another uh, war overseas without the large uh, support of the American public. And uh, during Vietnam, you know, they, the areas around Norfolk and uh, Columbus, Georgia, around Fort Benning and Fort Knox and so on and so forth, those people were aware of what was going on. But uh, small-town America, you know, they, they weren't uh, seeing troops marching off to war. And, and the uh, DOD decided, you know, they, they wanted widespread American support for this if we go to war in the Middle East. So, yeah, they uh, about the middle of October, uh, it became clear that, that Iraq was not going to move into Saudi Arabia, at least uh, they were their positions that they were fortifying were more defensive in nature. And so we started to think about, well, Saddam Hussein doesn't appear to uh, want to leave Kuwait. Uh, Should we drive him out? And there was, of course, there was a lot of discussion at the UN and the Pentagon and in the white house about what to do. And they asked the uh, Pentagon to come up with uh, plans to attack, to uh, move Iraq, out of Kuwait, and they said, well, what we really like to do is to have the, what's known as a, a left hook enveloping uh, operation to uh, go around the, the, the backside of, of Kuwait and, and trap Saddam's army in, in Kuwait, but we don't have enough troops to do it. So the only thing we can do is go right at, uh, at the heart of the Iraqi defenses in Kuwait in uh, what was known as the high diddle diddle right up the middle uh, operation. But we were looking at significant uh, significant casualties if we did that. Well, Rick Bigelow, there's going to be a lot to talk about in October. Uh, We've got to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, your recollection and and historical recollection of the atmospherics uh, within the country, because you touched on that. And then how we got so lucky with the leadership we had in place at that time. Uh, Both of those uh, very important for the discussion now uh, before we continue to – well, we're going to wade in back in in October once again on this, this whole desert storm thing. But Rick Bigelow is our guest. uh, patent attorney and historian extraordinaire. This is the Bob Cadaro Show, and we will return with Rick Bigelow after this. That's war. This date, 1975, they moved up to number eight with their hit, Why Can't We Be Friends, and a banner day in World War II, because three days after the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, Japan, a U.S. B-29 superfortress Codename Boxcar dropped a nuclear device called the Fat Man over Nagasaki. And the immediate deaths were 50,000. It killed an estimated 75,000 overall, despite missing its target. And it heralded the end of World War II, thank God. Saved a lot of Japanese lives, never mind American lives. 
Rick Bigelow is with us. We're talking Desert Shield. And Rick, I yeah, indulge me if you could to 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 deal with um the October events when October comes. But how did we get to have such outstanding commanders? I mean, Schwarzkopf comes out of nowhere and we discover him and we say, my gosh, what a treasure. Yeah, he was, uh, he was pretty good. He was in charge of the Southern command at, uh, down in Tampa. Tampa, And yeah, and he was, uh, he was the guy who was going to lead any operation. And of course, Colin Powell was, uh, was instrumental in, uh, in doing a lot of the, uh, the force planning and uh, he was just a, a very uh, credible source, and he's somebody that uh, that uh, the American public basically had a lot of trust in. So in October, uh, they were looking at the plans for a direct attack into Kuwait and were very concerned about the casualties that we were going to incur. And and so uh, the, the Schwarzkopf and the other generals in the Pentagon said, we just don't recommend we do that. And they said, well, what do you need to, uh, to do an enveloping uh, action and go around and, and trap the Iraqi troops in Kuwait? They said, we need a couple hundred thousand more men, and we need a couple cores of tanks and armored uh, vehicles. So uh, at that point in time, uh, President Bush and, and uh, Colin Powell said, Okay, uh, General Schwarzkopf, you got it. And so then they started moving uh, something like a thousand tanks out of uh, West Germany and into uh, the Persian Gulf. And of course, some of them went by air, but some of them had to uh, had to go by sea. So it's just taking a while to build up to uh, the kind of force that we we need to uh, to do the simultaneous. Uh, left hook around the, the uh, back of Kuwait and uh, somewhat of a, uh, a push directly into Kuwait, too. And also we sent uh, a, a squadron of ships with about ten to 20,000 Marines embarked to look like we were going to take a, a direct uh, amphibious assault into the Kuwait city. So we were we were building up tremendously, but it takes a while to do all that. Sure, Rick Bigelow, and, so, and, and tell us we, we didn't have the sea lift or airlift capacity that we once had, and they had to work they had to do workarounds. Obviously, they did, and and we got some help from some of the allies, but you know just just like uh, it usually is, it was pretty much an American show. And, uh, you know, if we didn't do it, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. But the Brits certainly helped out, and, and many, actually many of the uh, Arab nations helped out, too. So uh, we had some, some help, but if we didn't do it, it wasn't going to happen. Rick, Rick. By October, we had uh, about 320,000 Allied troops in Saudi Arabia, and about 200,000 of that was Americans. But we were going to be, uh, we were going to be building up. So, Rick Bigelow, do you recall, and and in your review of all this uh, information, do you recall the sentiments of the American people around this time, you know, in August? It seemed like they did, not only did they take time for the buildup, but they took time to build public opinion, which reached a crescendo, frankly, at the Super Bowl 
the, the following year. Right. Uh, I think they, uh, they tried to do a much better job on public opinion and public relations than they, uh, than had been the, the case in, in Vietnam. And I think, you know, they just had better spokespeople yeah. and they had learned from the mistakes of the Vietnam war as far as public uh, sentiment was concerned. But, you know, Americans just aren't real patient about yeah. things. So yeah. Bush had a, a pretty high opinion, uh, uh, public opinion poll back in early September by October. I think a lot of people were, you know, why aren't we going in there and, and doing this? And so his, his uh, public opinion polls were starting to slip a little bit. And then we get into November and uh, you got to remember, Bush was doing all this with uh, a Democrat Congress. And in the November elections of uh, 1990, the Democrats retained a 10-seat majority in the Senate and actually picked up a couple seats in the House. So uh, it's, it's amazing what he did with a Democrat Congress. So a couple days after the election... Bush orders another 200,000 soldiers, sailors, marine, and airmen into the Persian Gulf. So this was the buildup to, to get to the about uh, 600,000 troops that we needed. At the same time, it looks like Iraq sent more troops into Kuwait, and they had a total of about 680,000. So, so this was... Rick Bigelow, as a last question, because we got to go to break, uh, but last question for this subject today... Um, you're looking at uh, a country that was unified for the most part, but we were still haunted by Vietnam. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I think we wanted to make sure our troops and, and our equipment and our aircraft and our ships were really ready. And, and that's why, especially for the Guard and Reserve units that were activated, a lot of them were in combat or combat support roles. And, and so they had to uh, send them out into the desert in California and Arizona for a month or so to get them ready to go fight in the desert in the Middle East. So it just, just took time to, uh, to get everything ready to go. And the important thing was on uh, November 29th, the uh, UN Security Council, uh, by a 12 to 2 vote, passed resolution, resolution 678, which authorized use of force to expel Iraq from Kuwait. And we put a deadline of January 15th, uh, 1991, for, for them to, to leave. Now, a critical component and something that gave us incredible leeway was the dissolution of the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union simultaneously. There, no, there was no other worldly threat that the United States had to respond to so we could put it all on the line in the Middle East. That's right. That's right. It was a, a, a fortunate uh, confluence of historical events there that uh, allowed us to uh, take almost all of our forces and all of our attention and uh, focus on the Middle East. And eventually we had help from uh, 38 other countries, you know, some with just a few people, some like the Brits with uh, significant uh, amounts of people helping us out. Well, Rick Bigelow, I'm looking forward to continuing to delve into this subject, Operation Desert Shield and Operation Desert Storm. It started August 9th, 1990, 
And we thank you from taking moments from, uh, well, more than moments, from your practice of uh, patent law to give us this great history. Much, much appreciated. Glad to do it, Bob. All right. Rick Bigelow, we'll be back. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Storm Tracker 16 forecast for meteorologist Joe Snedeker. Today, partly sunny, less humid, chance of a passing shower, high of 82. Tonight, partly cloudy, low of 65. Thursday, clouds with scattered showers, high of 78. We are back. That's Neo, father of seven. Now, Letizia Fiorenza, who's in the studio, she knows Neo. I didn't know him until this uh, whole thing was going on. You like Neo's stuff? Yeah, I do. I do a lot. Well, actually, I I love his old songs, like the songs he was producing like in the 2010s, maybe at the beginning of those years. They were very cool. Well, Bulldog, we're going to have to have Letizia tell you about some songs, uh, Bulldog. I, I'm not a fan of that song. It's a nice sound, but, uh, yeah, we're going to go back to the old stuff. I like that. Thank you for that, Letizia. couple of texts, uh, and this is Body Shop Guy. He says, I think I told you before, I saw a display at the Smithsonian in the 70s about Hiroshima. Absolutely fascinating and horrific at the same time. Someone else texted, and I saw pictures of my uncle, who was a colonel and a helicopter pilot with the general. I'm guessing you're talking about Desert Shield, Desert Storm with General Schwarzkopf. Neat. That is neat. And another uh, texted him, what the bomb over Hiroshima was Little Man, and the one over Nagasaki was Fat Boy, if my recollection is correct, and you are correct. Uh, LTS, he says, LTS back at you, my friend, because the show is you, not just me. Well, our veteran for today, Chet Kempinski of Hanover, and he sent in some stuff. I I, I asked him for name, rank, everything. He, he just didn't, you know, he was not interested in providing the information that I wanted from him. And so... Uh, Let's tell you what I got from him. Chet said, I hail from the Polish patch of Buttonwood in Hanover Township and graduated from Hanover in 59. Then West Point sent me to prep school at Manlius Prep, which is where the Army sent recruited football players for academic 
and athletic strengthening. In my case, it was great because I only played in the first game of my senior year in high school due to a broken wrist. We played a JV and freshman college schedule. So he told me about football. And I wanted to know about Vietnam. <laughs> but that's, you're going to get what he gives you. And uh, But we're very proud to honor him. And I told you, I said, I love when we have a chance to honor those veterans that are still with us. And as you can tell from our 9 o'clock interview, Chet Kempinski is very much with us. Bob Cadero with you on WILK. We're going to take this break. We're going to come back and uh, continue the program. We're looking forward to more of this. We've got uh, Nikki DeSando in with us, uh, along with Letizia Firenza. And we're going to talk to them a little bit about everything. But uh, Nikki's been around. We know that. So we'll talk about some of his deal after this. Had to wait till then. This date, 1975, James Taylor moved from number 15 to number 9 with his remake of uh, Marvin Gaye's How Sweet It Is. And uh, Chet Kempinski, he's our guy today. Two tours of Vietnam. West Point grad, 173rd Airborne, out of Hanover. Keep talking about him. We had a, the, the honor to be able to speak with him in our first hour. Somebody texted, well, not somebody. Well, no, they didn't put their names. Uh, but, Bob, did you ever read the book Killing the Rising Sun by Bill O'Reilly? Very enlightening and an eye-opener, Mountaintop LTS. Yes, I've read all of Bill O'Reilly's books except the most recent ones. Martin Dugard. I'm not taking credit away from Bill O'Reilly. Martin Dugard, who has co-written books with James Patterson, is one of America's outstanding historians. And he co-writes the books and does most of the research for O'Reilly. And they are... uh, all of those compilations, and I don't care how much you study uh, the the war in the Pacific, just for example, which is the subject of Killing the Rising Sun, or anything, war, the end of World War II, uh, the Bible, w- when it comes to killing Jesus, all of those books will teach you something. Killing Lincoln, teach you something that you have not read before, and and very cohesive studies. And I give most of the credit to Martin DeGuard, but a lot of the credit, obviously, to Bill O'Reilly as well. So I told you we're joined by Letizia Fiorenza, and she's our Italian friend, cousin of Nikki DeSanto, who's also in with us. What What are your impressions now, coming back as an adult uh, to America after having seen it when eight years ago, when you were about 14 years old or such? Tell, tell us your experiences. Okay, so um, this time I really had the chance to talk to people, to, you know, to find myself in different environments. So I found myself in, you know, a courthouse. Now I'm here. So I really 
uh, compared to the last time I had the chance to talk to many different people. So the thing that I have noticed is that you Americans are very like honest people. Like you really speak your mind. You don't keep anything for yourself. If you want to say something, you do. And I really do appreciate that. Well, of you course, can't hang around with Nikki DeSanto unless you do. So yeah. I think that's a that's a product of who you're with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're Obviously, also staying in Dunmore. So <laughs> they've well, got an opinion for everything there. Yeah, of course. But you know, I'm really glad glad that I get to see um, you know the. Um, you know the not only the big cities so the touristic side of the united states as tourists because i am a tourist right now mm -hmm. um but i'm glad that i get to see also you know the everyday life of people that's yeah. what they do here so i'm really happy that i get to do yes, that well, we're going to talk a little bit more to you uh letizia letizia firenza she's here with cousin nick desano we're going to talk about to both of them in the next hour Bob Kadar with you, WILK. Time for the Bloomberg Money Minute. Apparently, the Bulldog likes this song. It took you about five minutes to come to me and turn my mic on. That's Linda Ronstadt. In it, I mean, it's nowhere near as good as Buddy Holly's original version. But she came out with That'll Be the Day on uh, this date in 1976. And apparently, the Bulldog likes it. And, of course, 1974. Vice President Gerald Orr Ford becomes the nation's 38th chief executive as uh, President Richard Nixon's resignation takes effect. We know all those cameras and the V for victory from Nixon. And uh, Gerald Ford was a stabilizing force, and he did do the right thing in the end by uh, pardoning Nixon, even though it cost him the presidency. And we had uh, we had leaders then. You know, we just had leaders then. So, uh, Letizia Firenze, tell us, you're watching this uh, display. I'm not trying to get you into political opinions or anything like that. You know, you're young, you're from Italy, so you're seeing from two totally different perspectives than I would see it or your cousin Nick would see it. What's the prospect? Although you saw Silvio Berlusconi, your prime minister, get prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this, does this seem normal to you or is it crazy or uh, what's your reaction to the, the political things that are going on in the United States, particularly regarding Donald Trump? Okay. So obviously the United States are the, um, the leaders of the economic power in the world. So everything that regards politics here. It is also object of interest for Italians, of course. Well, I'm not surprised that, for example, your former president, which is Donald Trump, has been charged with, like, I was listening to the news the other day, he has been charged with 78 different, yeah, uh, yeah different charges, yes. <laughs> uh, but it does not surprise, it doesn't surprise me because we had Silvio Berlusconi that died just like two months ago, yeah. and he has been a very controversial controversial um, almost the donald person. trump he came from the private industry even though he had a exactly. lot of uh, interaction with government because he was a a licensed broadcaster and all that kind of thing but yeah he i guess you had your donald trump didn't you um well actually i don't have a political opinion for the united states like i would say i'm more left-sided i'm less conservative but it's just my political opinion yeah. so i'm not obviously judging any of the People who who have been politicians here. Well, that's uh, my I'm just job. Anyway. That, yeah. That's my job anyway. <laughs> I'm just saying that he's a very controversial 
you know, person. So obviously he has done the good things. He he also has done the bad things. Like I think that um, I I understand the people the people that maybe do not agree with certain things that he has done. Yeah. But um, I think that's up to the people to decide. Like what, I, I what just was have the my view, opinion. and I, we could we could expand on this later, and we may have to. But uh, what what did you see? Well, regarding January sixth, uh, was that covered heavily in Italy? Are uh, the 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 uh, uh, riot at the Capitol here in the United States? Mm, well, yes and no. Like you, you you have to understand that the news when they travel across you know the world, they're not as they present them to you in the U.S. Like some of the things get cut cut off, so. Obviously, you're not getting the the full information, the mm-hmm. full new. Like they they tell you the information, but they do not really. Maybe they're not able to express what's really happening in the state itself. So. So it wasn't an important. Not news not story that much. in Italy. Okay. Not that much, actually. Because I I I mean, one of my greatest fears at that time was, my God, that we're embarrassed in front of the whole world. No, but, not really. Because I guess I assumed they were paying attention. <laughs> Well, um, there's um, a proverb that says that Italians tend to forget. So when you when you tell them something, is that something, where I get it? <laughs> no, that's yeah, really. Like, but that's the same thing for the things that happen in Italy. Yeah. Like, if if there's something bad that happens, as soon as the you know the the thing becomes um, less important, like they do not talk about that that much on the news. They forget about it. So that's the uh, yeah. that's the same thing also for the news that come that come from you know a well, different country. Okay, well we're gonna take a break. We've got uh, Nikki Desando, my old friend, and uh, his cousin Letizia Fiorenza. They are with us here on the Club for Common Sense. We continue to honor Chet Kempinski, um, a real character from Hanover who was on with us earlier. A Vietnam veteran, two tours combat veteran, 173rd Airborne, West Point graduate. Uh, We'll keep talking about him as well. Bob Cadaro, W-I-L-K. We'll take this break for the news and come back. W-I-L-K News Radio. This is the Bob Cordaro Show Podcast. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 